Well, let's jump into the word of the Lord here today. Now, the Lord had said to Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house to a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that curse thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Verse 4. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And one last verse, verse 5. It says then, Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten into Haran, and they went forth to go into the land of Canaan. So they came into the land of Canaan. With the help of the Lord, for a few moments, I want to preach to you on this subject, the retreat from mystery. The retreat from mystery. Let's talk to the Lord. Lord, we love you today. Thankful, God, that your word and your power is in this house. And Lord, I pray that, God, as we progress through this message, Lord, at a point of your choosing, Jesus, that it would no longer be Adam Michael Shaw from Canada who speaks. But, God, at some point you would take over my mind, my mouth, my words. And, God, we would hear from heaven because your word is what changes. Your word is what produces fruit. Your word... God is what speaks life into our souls. God, take us deeper, Jesus. And Lord, the direction of your will and of your purpose. And I pray that your hand would be on us. In Jesus' name, everybody say amen. amen. Hallelujah. You may be seated. There's a, a program that I occasionally listen to in the car when I get a chance. It's called Q. And uh, it's a Canadian arts and culture magazine show put on by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, which is our national broadcaster and they have a segment every once in a while where they invite a culture critic to deconstruct various elements of popular culture and what it says about us as a society. In this particular segment, the phenomenon of sequels and prequels, spinoffs and franchise culture was being discussed. And they offered up for an interviewee, Dr. Jeet Har, and what he had to say about this cultural phenomenon. And he went off, really. The moment they turned his mic on, a man just started to rant. And uh, I found this interesting, because I've never really heard anybody talk that angrily about superhero movies before, so I thought I'd keep listening. And he began to criticize this new popular media trend that has not stopped as... Uh, the world has progressed, and, and in this particular interview, he used the 2015 Star Wars film, The Force Awakens, as an example of what is wrong with culture at the moment. And in the interview, the trailer for the movie was played, and at the conclusion, Jeet said, this whole trailer is an example of fan servicing, giving fans comfort scenes of things that they are already familiar with. The first story, the whole backstory is kind of implied, but it's never spelled out. The interviewee, the, or the interviewer, I should say, interrupted Dr. G. And he said, well, what's wrong with this man? I mean, what's wrong with throwing a bone to the fans? And I quote Dr. G. He says, it becomes the opposite of a story. Star Wars obsessives, for instance, may be psyched for an update on Han Solo or 
Chewbacca. In the original movie, there's mystery. George Lucas, he kind of implies the things that have happened, but he doesn't spell it out. But under pressure from the superfans, he wrote the prequel. Because there is this myth that if you dig deeper and get more details, that somehow you're getting more into the story, but the reality is you're getting further away. It's a retreat from mystery. Fans are often their own worst enemies. This movie is trying to hit all of the right buttons and give fans the comfort scenes, a world that they already know, giving them what they already have, stories. He said should function like real life does. It just kind of kicks you in the deep end of the pool and you got to figure it out. And he says this isn't a modern thing. This, this is a human thing. And he gives an example from history back in the day. There was a story, The Adventures of the Sussex Vampire by Sherlock Holmes, in which the great detective Sherlock Holmes declares to Dr. Watson, and I quote from this old, you know, famous detective story, Matilda Briggs was not the name of a young woman, Watson. It was a ship which is associated with the giant rat of Sumatra, a story for which the world is not yet prepared. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle never went on to write about the mystery of the mystery of the giant rat of Sumatra. Maybe he forgot that he said it in one of his books. Maybe he died before he got the chance. Or maybe he just didn't care. And it was a mystery for which the world was not yet prepared, perhaps. But following Arthur Conan Doyle's death, fan fiction exploded. People began to fill in the details of the story. They began to write the backstory and create their own version of the giant rat mystery. And to this date, Dr. Dr. Jeet says, and I'm still quoting him by the way, 26 books, movies, and television shows, and even, yes, academic papers have been written to fill in the mystery of the mystery of the giant rat of Sumatra. Star Wars, Sherlock Holmes. The interviewer breaks in again and says, what does this say about us then? It's a lack of curiosity, Dr. Jeet says. A desire for completeness. You don't want a new story. You love the familiar story. You want to retreat into them. It's a desire to have all of the answers and not ponder the mystery. The biggest problem, he said, is this is a retreat from mystery. I see this as a desire to retreat from mystery, giving into the human impulse to know all of the facts and to have all of the details before the story can really impact your life. Retreat from mystery. Now I'm not here today to talk to you about how you like your comic books. It doesn't really, doesn't really have, make a difference or an impact on my life or your life, really, one way or the other. But I believe that this idea and this concept is impacting the way that you're living your life, even if you are a mature Christian, and yes, even if you are a leader in God's kingdom. I'm much more concerned with how you're living your life. Because we're living in a world where we expect God to give us some fan servicing. To hit all of the expected and the requested buttons in our lives. To give us the details and to fill in the backstory, To fill our lives with familiar, predictable comfort scenes. There is a desire within our culture to retreat from mystery. To work out all of the possible structures and answer all of the possible questions. Before we can fully accept what has been written and what has been declared. And to not fully engage unless we have all of the facts 
had all of the plans laid out. And as I peer into the life and culture of Christians in the 21st century, I see the same struggle to retreat from mystery. A withdrawal from anything that does not include all of the details, that does not include the full story, that does not answer all of the questions. And as a result, we do not fully commit and we live our life in our ministry and our leadership and our walk with God with one foot firmly on the break. Until we know for sure what God is up to. But I'm here to preach to this congregation. And I'm here to preach to the young people and the young adults and the, and the parents and the moms and dads and the leaders and the grandmas and grandpas that the call to follow God is a call to walk by faith and not by sight. To run headlong into the question marks and the mystery to not run away. To embrace not retreat from the unknown. So God meets Abram in the land of his ancestors. He extends to him this call to enter into covenant. And Abram must decide whether or not he is going to abandon the world that he knows and the land that he will have for the land that God offers. He must decide whether to abandon what family he still has for the family that God is going to provide for him. A nation that will come from him. And this is against all logic because Sarai, his wife, cannot have babies. He must decide whether or not he is willing to set aside known blessing, known inheritance for this unknown thing that God is calling him into. So, he's got to give up protection. He's got to give up the security that comes with familiarity. He's got to pull up all of his roots and he's got to leave everything that is familiar to him. This call... To follow God offers much. But the cost is going to be significant. And Abram must trust God to deliver what he has promised and what he has said. But one thing I know about the Lord is that God will never ask you to walk away unless he is willing to offer you something better. Whatever God asks you to forsake is never as good as what he is calling you to walk into. God promises that when you leave Haran, you're going to come into a new land. And when you leave the gods and when you leave the family of your fathers, I'm going to lead you to this new land. And I'm going to make you a new nation and a new people. There is great promise in what God has said. But make no mistake. Make no mistake. This call into covenant is a call into mystery. It's an invitation to follow God into question marks. It's a, go to the land that I will show you. How will I know when I get there, God? I'll let you know when we get there. Where's this nation, God, going to come from? Sarai. Sarai, the one that we've been trying, we've been, we've been dealing with this infertility thing forever. From Sarai, yes, from Sarai. From your barren wife will come a great nation. Following Jesus is always a call in the mystery. God is never going to give you all of the details. God is never going to answer all of your questions. The will of God is not a destination on a map. It is a way, it is a direction of saying yes wherever he leads. 
Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It is the evidence of things that is not seen. Faith is the willingness to embrace whatever God says, and you will obey whatever direction that he calls you into. Faith submits and obeys with it, all of your questions answered. Faith is the ability to understand that God has every right to keep some stuff from you. And that he may never let you know why he is taking you through what you are going through. God may never reveal to you the purpose of what he is doing and why he is doing it. And in those moments and in those times, everything that you've just affirmed with all of your amens, you must learn to follow without answers, obey without results, and submit without a backstory. This is what it means to walk by faith. Walking and living by faith is not just naming it and claiming it and blabbing it and grabbing it. Walking by faith isn't just laying your hands on every sick person you see and saying in the name of Jesus be healed. Living and walking by faith is saying, God, you get to do whatever you want with my life. Praise God. Faith is the consistent belief that despite your fear, that God is good. It's holding on to hope in Jesus that nothing in, nothing in life is ever final until Jesus has had his say. Faith is believing in God even though you can't see how it's going to happen. Faith says Jesus is offering me a better life than what I could ever make on my own. So even though I don't know what he's up to or why he's up to it, I am going to just follow Jesus. Praise God. But four chapters later, we are hit with a sudden twist. In Genesis chapter 16, verse 1, I read, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. We're four chapters deep. They have packed up the truck. They've loaded up the camels. They got everybody together and they walked into the desert following after the hand of God and they've gone one chapter, two chapter, three chapter, four chapters, decade. Nothing. Not a child. Not a land. The problem is immediately offered to us in the first chapter. The opening verse of this chapter, I should say. Sarai has had no children. This little phrase brings the whole covenant into jeopardy. How is it going to happen? How is God going to make this come to pass? But in the next phrase of this first verse, we see Sarai making a suggestion of how they can you know, help God. She had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abraham, see, now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. This is Jesus' fault. Jesus hadn't done it yet. So here's what we should do. Please, please go into my maid and perhaps I shall obtain a child by her. It says, and then Abraham heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife after Abram had dwelt ten 
years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar and she conceived. And can you imagine that? It caused some drama. She saw that she had conceived. Her mistress became despised in her eyes. Four chapters later, we're hit with the problem. God hasn't answered our prayer yet. God hasn't fulfilled his prophecy yet. God hasn't answered the covenant yet. And so four chapters later, Abram got tempted to retreat from mystery. Somewhere, Abram got scared and he needed details. So he and Sarai wrestled the divine plan out of the hands of God so they could invent their own outcome. So they could write in their own details. So that they could interject a set of specifics and parameters into God's plan that they themselves could control. And this retreat from mystery, this desire to control the outcome, to map out the plan and to manage the details placed Abram outside of the will of God. In fact, it placed his little family on a collision course with adversity. It interjected more drama, not less. More conflict, not more peace. More problems, not more solutions. Then Sarai said unto Abram, my wrong be upon you. Lest we judge them too harshly. Obsessed with unraveling the mystery of God's will and God's word in our own life. Sometimes we grab hold of the mysterious narrative that God is trying to pen through his will. We wrestle the pen out of his hand and we try to furiously fill in details that we can control. Fill in all the places where there are question marks. All the places where there are gaps. All the places where there are unanswered prayers. So we can help God move life forward. Move his will forward. Move his word forward in our life. Leaders, we get worried about whether or not our talent and our ministry will be noticed. We become obsessed with whether or not God is going to do actually his thing that he said he was going to do. So we decide that we're going to help move God forward. Become worried that we won't be recognized or honored. For the effort and the doors won't open that God said and prophesied he would open. So we start self-promoting. We start looking at others and becoming jealous of their success. And seek to tear them down so that we can lift ourselves up. Does that happen? Yes, it does. I see there's a lot of young people in the room here tonight. And like many young people, we get lonely. We reach our young adult years and all of our friends got somebody in their life. So we get involved with someone who's not headed in the same direction that we are, maybe even in the church. Because it's easier to settle for someone that's less than God's best. It's easier to act on what you want right now and know who you're getting than to wait on the unknown mystery person that God has for you. We live completely obsessed. We live completely obsessed with our carefully curated and crafted social media image because seeking public approval seems far easier, far better to manage 
far more affirming in the moment than seeking God in private. We throw ourselves into work. We throw ourselves into our studies. We throw ourselves into our secular careers and uh, uh, obtaining money and obtaining things because this feels more tangible and easier to ascertain. It's a success that we can manufacture. Or sometimes we get in crisis moments in our faith. We hit burnout as we heard from Brother Emery today and we pull back. We withdraw from the voices of accountability. We start ghosting people in our life that God has put in our life to guide us and direct us. We, we find new pastors and new elders or new leaders that can speak into our life and actually affirm what we want rather than the people that God put in our life to guide us and shepherd us because existentially we love the idea of knowing God but the moment God starts asking you for real submission and, and real dedication and real sacrifice in things that you don't agree with anymore. Oh, all right. God starts asking for your vices and your time and your habits. He starts letting voices come into your life of your elders and your pastors and your overseers that start checking you and checking your attitude and checking your spirit and checking the things you're involved in and the other influences in your world. So we pull back because we love the idea, but we don't actually want to do it in reality. And so it's easier. It's easier just to find new voices. It's easier just to find new things rather than embrace the mystery of doing things that we don't agree with. People and voices and leaders that God is actually putting in our life. And when we pray, and images of past hurt, wounds, maybe the vicious words of a parent, maybe a catastrophic failure. Maybe something even awful like abuse. We get into the presence of God. And it doesn't even matter if the sermon was about the thing or not. God starts knocking on that door of our heart. And starts saying, why don't you give me that? Don't you know that anger is consuming you? Don't you know that that bitterness is consuming you? I want you to let go and forgive, so we don't, but we don't want to because that anger is like a familiar blanket. That distrust is like a great big fence that keeps us from ever getting hurt again. Keeps the bad things from being repeated in our lives so we're not open with anybody. Nobody knows the real you. Everybody gets the curated public image of you, but there's nobody in your world that you're absolutely transparent with. No one knows what, could, what you're really like because who knows what could happen if you let them behind the wall. Maybe you layer your heart with all of these rational arguments as to why you love God but you're not ready to be fully committed to an apostolic life. And, and you scour the internet so that you can have all the right comebacks and all the right arguments to your pastors or your elders or your leaders' instructions because that idea of being all in scary because you know there's parts of your life that you'll no longer be able to control you suffer trauma and now you're questioning maybe you get hurt in the church now you're questioning so much about your life you're even questioning fundamental apostolic doctrine 
Like whether or not there is one God. Whether or not baptism in Jesus' name is actually important. Whether or not we've got to speak in tongues as the evidence of the Holy Spirit. Whether or not maybe you even believe in God in the first place. You're like, Adam, don't you understand? This is a leaders conference. Yes, I know there is a leaders conference. And I know that when leaders get hurt, when mature believers get hurt, crazy things can run through your head. And sometimes it's easier to lean into those thoughts and lean into those doubts than actually dealing with the despair and with the hurt and with the depression that your trauma has caused than actually opening up your soul to God and saying I've got bitterness that's destroying me on the inside. It's easier to just go after the church. It's easier to attack a belief than it is to look into the mirror and say there is hatred within my heart and I need to let this go before I become destroyed. It's easier to feel the Holy Ghost, to scour the internet looking for ideas that affirm your thoughts while you slowly make your exit from the faith than it is to be open with a leader or with a pastor about your struggles. You're afraid they'll be mad. Or worse, if you are a leader, you're afraid that you'll look bad. Right? And so you talk to your peers. You talk to friends that you know intellectually you can run circles around. and People that won't actually confront you. You talk to peers instead of a pastor because they listen but have no authority or have no power to bring accountability in your life because the unknown consequences of accountability actually terrify you. But I want you to hear me tonight. God did not give you leaders to hurt you, but to help you. And that accountability is healthy and it is healing. Let's plow a little deeper. You hit a rough patch in your marriage. You hit, a, you hit that season that anybody who's been married any length of time goes through where you hit this awkward phase. You hit this uncomfortable phase where things start getting tight financially. and you, All of a sudden there's all of this pressure. and You hit this rough patch in your relationship and you allow your eyes and your mind to wander because that seems easier than the mystery. Of holding your spouse's hand and walking into counseling and dealing with the things that are dividing your relationship. It's easy to go on Facebook and look up the photos of the people that you used to have crushes on in high school. And you may be saying, talk to the young people, preacher. No, no, no. This is a sociological phenomenon that is big among baby boomers. When they get into their second and third decade or fourth decade of marriage and they start getting bored or they deal with empty nest syndrome. And all of a sudden they need something to make life more exciting. So rather than admitting to their spouse and to others that there's things really wrong with the relationship, they start to scour the internet and maybe see if just something could happen live half committed to God the other half committed to your career comfortable with being a living contradiction a duality of church in the world where your private life does not reflect any of the values that you affirm in your public life. Practicing enough Christianity to dull the guilt but, and enough, enough Christianity to dull the spiritual hunger but not enough to be completely consumed by the Holy Ghost. Or we make no moves at all. 
We come to church and culturally we're Pentecostal. You know how to move and bounce with the music. You know how to clap and how to raise your hands. You know all the right moments in my message with the rise and fall of my voice to say amen so that you can fit in with the crowd. But your external image is as deep as you go. Oh, because this feels safer. It's not because that you hate God. It's not because you want to be fake. It's not because you want to be shallow. It's that shallowness is safer. Because God may ask you for something that you don't want to give if you go all in. You don't want to give him your heart that way. You don't want to walk away from that career and that job and that salary. You don't want to walk away from all of those things that make you feel comfortable and safe. You get to keep part of your heart. And these decisions that we make under the influence of the flesh can have life-altering missions, altering impact, all because we seek to retreat from the mystery. We are so scientific in our world where we expect exact answers in our culture because it seems like that's the only certitude that we could ever ascertain. But the will and the call of God is not a formula that you can plug in and get automatic results. It is a life of following God wherever He may lead your life. This is what it means to be led by the Holy Ghost. This is what it means to be led by the Spirit. I'm so glad we jump. I'm so glad we shout. I'm so glad we lift our voice. But at some point, when the service is over, God's got to be able to talk to you. God's got to be able to lead you. God's going to be able to take you by the hand and lead your life wherever He would want it to go. This is what it means to be led by the Holy Ghost. The Spirit leading your actual real life. God's got to be able to lead you wherever He wants. Some of us are great at doing church, but horrible at following Jesus. But if our, uh, if our generation is going to be the one upon whom the ends of the earth have come, and if we will profoundly make an impact on the kingdom of God, we have got to walk by faith and not by sight. We've got to learn to trust and follow and obey God, even though He never gives you the plan are all the answers. It's Abram. He wandered. Abram, he, he wandered. Hagar came about. Nearly tore the family apart. He had to send Hagar and Ishmael away. And wandering in the desert. Standing outside of the promise of God. They're just in this limbo place. Where they're trying, they're wrestling with the Lord. Wrestling with God. Trying to manage the variables. Trying to manage the details. Pulling back from the mystery of that original call. Pulling back from the question marks that they so willingly embraced at that original call. But when did it all change for Abram? When did it all turn around for him? Because I'm assuming most of us here, we know the story. That there was an Isaac. There was a Jacob. And there were 12 tribes. And then there was Moses. And then there was a nation, and then there was the law, and then there was David, and then we lead all the way through until there is Jesus that comes, that, that one upon whom all of the nations of the earth will be blessed and the church could be born. And So we know that at some point Abram got his act together. The question is when. The question is when. Because I, I need to know when. I need to know when. 
not, not so I can win Bible trivia, but so I, I, can, I can deal with me. I, I, know, I know how to give it all to God. You know how to give it all to God. When? To turn around for Abram. Well, Genesis 17. Brother Emery has been prophesying it, speaking it out in every service. He's touched the microphone and tells us when Abram was 90 and 9 years old, the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, I am almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. And says, then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, by behold, behold, my covenant was with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of many nations. Verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, musicians, please come. As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And I will bless her and will give you a son by her, that I will bless her and she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples shall be from her. So when? When did it all change? Happened when Abram had an encounter with God that changed his name. Addition of one letter, H, in English. Simple. But in Hebrew, that letter, their letters were tied to ideas and meanings. Not just like us, we have boring old letters, but their, their letters were just There was theology connected to everything that had to do with the people of God. That H sound represented the breath of God there's something powerful about the breath of God in Genesis 3 or Genesis 2 I should say man was nothing more than a hunk of mud lying on the ground but then God breathed on Adam the breath of life and he became a living soul Jesus said in Acts 1 to his disciples I want you to go wait for the promise of the Father and he will empower you and they went into the upper room and the Bible says that when they prayed, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak in other tongues. As the Spirit gave them the utterance, what happened? The Holy Ghost was breathed over them. The presence of God was breathed over them. When God's presence gets breathed over you, gets attached to your heart, something from God gets added to something inside of you. That's what happened to Abraham that day, that final time. 
that God affirmed to him his covenant. Something from God attached itself to something in Abram and he was never the same. And when that word from God, when that breath from God got attached to his soul, it changed him and it just changed his name. But Abraham never looked back. Abraham never questioned again. Abraham never failed again. He followed God the whole way through. I know you've been singing and I know you've been shouting and I'm glad. I really am. But as the Holy Ghost so permeated your soul that His breath and His presence has now become part of who you are. See, God's not here to answer your questions. Because that's not sustainable. Because if he answers your questions now, what's going to happen in six months when you've got more? What's going to happen in five years when you've got more? You'll be hit with something else. Because guess what? That's life. That's how it happens. A little over 40 months ago, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. And eight months after the initial diagnosis and a surgery that changed every plan we had for our family, she faced another scare. And I may talk about it on Sunday, but thanks be to God, she's cancer-free today. But when I was sitting in that office... finding out in six weeks we were going to have a surgery that would change our life. What I did not need in that moment was an answer. Why? What good is that going to do? We're still going to have to deal with the surgery. I didn't need an answer. When I watched my little boy pass out in the car eight times on his way to the hospital because his throat had closed because he goes into respiratory distress because of allergies he has in his body. What I didn't need at that moment as we were going down the road at breakneck speed in the middle of the winter, ice covering the roads, trying desperately to get him to a hospital. What I didn't need at that moment was for God to sit me down and let him and let him let me know why. I, 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 that, that would do nothing. And if he gave me the why to that allergic reaction, what about the next one? What I needed most of all in those moments was to be transformed by the Holy Ghost. What I needed as we face two potential cancer diagnoses in a single year, what I needed in that moment was for the Holy Ghost to change me. What I needed was for God to breathe over my life so that something from heaven could get attached to something inside of me and I would be able to hold her hand as we went into the OR and say, God, whatever you want to do, do it. Lord, you can do whatever you want with our life and our family. God, everything we have is yours. Ah, ah, ah. I want you to hear me before we open these altars. If you want certainty in your life, you will most certainly be disappointed with God. Because God's not here to give you the facts. 
but he is here to do in you what he did in Abraham. And that's by his spirit change the way that you look at your mystery. To change the way you're looking at your problems. To change the way that you're looking at your situation. Lord, I've got questions, so breathe on me. Lord, I've got some hurts, so breathe on me. Lord, we're facing this insurmountable problem, so breathe on me, God. I don't want answers anymore, but what I want is something from your world. They get attached to something inside of my soul. So I will never be the same. So tonight, I want you to find a place of prayer. And let your prayer tonight be God. Lord, let your presence breathe on me. God, I am not going to ask you for why anymore. God, I'm not going to ask you how much longer anymore. God, I'm not going to ask you how. Oh, God, you're going to work it out anymore. God, I'm not going to try to wrestle with you so that I can invent my own outcomes anymore, Lord. All I say, Jesus, is breathe on me. Lord, breathe on me so that I view this differently. Lord, breathe on me so I view my church differently. Lord, breathe on me so I view my diagnosis differently. Lord, breathe on me so I view my singleness differently. Lord, breathe on me till I view my family and my marriage and my children differently. Lord, breathe on me, oh God. If you're here today and you have been wrestling with the mystery of the will and plan of God, of the working and the sovereignty of the Holy Ghost in your life. These altars are open, not for us to pray so that it changes, but for us to pray so that we are changed and His Spirit can move in our hearts and get attached to our souls and change the way we look at the world. That's it. That's it. Reach out to Him right now by the authority of your Word, by the blood that you shed on Calvary. Lord, I pray that there would be a sound from heaven like of a rushing mighty wind that would come into this room. Lord, and fill your church again with the Holy Ghost. Lord, I pray breathe over. Breathe over every leader. Breathe over every pastor's wife. Breathe over every saint of God. Breathe over every leader in this room. In the name of Jesus, let it be done. That's it. Call out to him as they begin to sing. As they begin to sing, call out to Him. That's it. No more pat prayers. No more easy prayers. No more going through the motion prayers. But call out to God. Call out to God. Call out to God. Call out to God. That's it in the name of Jesus. Tonight's the night you change. 
Tonight's the night God moves in your heart. Tonight's the night your attitude and your perception of your trial shifts. That's it. I want you to embrace this. That's it. Lean into the Spirit. Lean into what God is doing right now in this room. That's it. Don't give God your three hallelujahs in your cell. And I love you, Jesus. This is the moment for you to talk to God about your real life. That's it, pastors. That's it, leaders. That's it. That's it. That's it. You've been trying to be strong. You've been trying to be strong for your congregation. But you don't need to try to be strong in the presence of God. Let me walk upon the waters where rain. 